Have you ever heard uh, anybody say, I've got to spend more time doing the things that are really important? You ever said that? You ever felt bad that you're not really doing the things that are really important? The question is, what are the things that are really important? You know, what are, what are the things that are most important in your life for you? You know, taking a poll of your family and friends, what, what's important to them? What would they say is important? What would a pastor say is important? He's got 50, at least 52 important things to say every year. And he himself can't remember what he said three weeks ago. Um, I want to simplify your life, okay? I really want to help you. Life is only about two things. Okay? What are they? God and people. There's a place for you to, some notes uh, which should have been passed out there with the bulletins. You can follow along. There's really only two things that are important, God and people. And how do I know that? Because this is what Jesus told us. Look at Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God. Why don't we say this together? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the next verse, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus is trying to simplify the complexities of God's work. I mean, there's so much stuff that we can talk about. Uh, there are 66 books in the Bible, thousands, thousands of pages, you know, a couple thousand pages or 1,500 pages, I don't know, probably hundreds of thousands of words. And Jesus understands that people can get really confused about, about religion, and he's making it very simple. There are only two things that really matter, God and people. And you see this in the Ten Commandments. I talked about this, um, I don't know if I talked, I think, did I talk about this last week? I, I don't, maybe I, I, I talked, yes, I talked about it two weeks ago when I wasn't here. Um, when I was at Arizona State speaking to a student church. But the Ten Commandments, I'm just, you know, being honest. I'm just saying, um, in the Ten Commandments, there are three commandments about God. Love the Lord your God. Uh, three commandments. Uh, thou shalt have no other gods before thee, and uh, thou shalt uh, not make any idols, and thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God. There are three commandments about God. And then there's one commandment about keeping the Sabbath, which is not just kind of religious activity. Keeping the Sabbath is about stopping everything and relating everything that we know and understand and love about God bringing it into all the people in our life and our stuff and their stuff. Okay. The commandments are, are about people and stuff and in that order. And so we have to bring God, the idea of the Ten Commandments is to put God first and remember that and take a whole day every week just to pause and reflect on that and not do anything because it's so easy to leave God out. But to, to take a whole day to reflect on that, to bring God into everything in your life, uh, which is about relationships, starting with your family, honor your father and your mother, and that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth, uh, and then, and then commandments about how you treat people, and you know whether or not you should be putting stuff in front of relationships. So there are really only two things that are important in life: 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've, I've heard people kind of <clears throat> turn that around and, and say, well, you know, you can't really love others until you really learn how to love yourself. Uh, you can hate yourself and still love others. And when you love others, it actually helps you love yourself. It gives you significance. I mean, it, it's not about finding your significance uh, and then loving others. It's about finding your significance in loving others. Love others as much as you love yourself. And if you're really honest, Jesus is talking really honestly here. You know, we love ourselves. We're profoundly selfish people. And we, it's, all, it's always all about me. I mean, I'm a pastor. I got two seminary degrees. You know, I was leader of a large church. And, you know, I just think about just my day-to-day life. Forget all that ministry stuff. It's just so many times, so many moments in my life, it's all about me. You know, I came out of my mother's womb screaming and yelling, and sometimes I'm still screaming and yelling. And uh, just ask Marilyn. Um, Maybe you shouldn't ask her. Okay, anyway, so there are only two things that are important, loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, But, you know, just just to really key in on what I just said, People say, oh, you know, there's something that's really important. There's one other thing that's really important. It's me. You know, I, I can't really, unless I really deal with me and I learn how to love me, I, I, can't, I can't really be everything God wants me to be. Uh, maybe one thing that, there's maybe one thing that's really important in life. In fact, maybe it's the most important thing of all. Say that two-letter word with me. It'll make you feel good for just a few seconds. Me. Me. Okay. So, <clears throat> I love what was said earlier. It made me feel really good. It made me <laughs> feel, I heard you say that. It made me feel really good. What made you feel really good? You know, just showing love. And, and the person, you know, no tears came to her eyes. I can tell you that sometimes when you help people, they don't appreciate it. And if you don't believe that, have children. Okay? <laughs> like the mom back there who didn't kill her teenage daughter. That was her triumph this week. Okay. Uh, in an article in USA Today, uh, in, in a cover article, article titled, Why is Everyone So Short-Tempered? Karen Peterson wrote this, Experts Searching uh, for a Cause for Our Rising Levels of Hostility Blame an Increasing Sense of Self-Importance, the Widespread Feeling that Things Should Happen My Way. Basically, every time I'm upset, something didn't go my way. And when something doesn't go my way, it, it's a way for God to reveal to me just how much life is about me. Now, here's, a, here's the problem and the solution. The more I put me first, the more problems I have, the more I put God and others first, the more I become fully human and at peace with myself. And the only way I can escape the enslavement of me is to start thinking about God and putting others first. So I want to talk, first of all, about the theology of it all, and then I'm going to talk about the practice of it all. Okay, first of all, the triune God of the Bible is the model, the prototypical community. God is Trinity. It's really interesting. When we look at God, it's not about him. I mean, God, this is a remarkable, uh, a remarkable teaching of the Christian faith, that God, God is one, but he's three in one. And so, in the nature of God, there is the necessity of interaction, interdependence, love, 
eternal love. God is love. How, how is God love? He loves within himself. And God is an eternal community. This is a theology of it all, okay? Where does this come from? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. Uh, God is multiple diverse personalities, fully interdependent and interfacing with one another in nature, who God is in his being, in purpose, what God intends, and in practice, what God does. So look at John chapter 17, verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be, look at, he's talking, actually praying to the Father about his disciples, about his followers, and that would be us, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus is praying to the Father for us to be one, not the same, but one, as he and the Father are one, one in nature, one in purpose, one in destiny. That is, I can't understand that. I can't grasp that. But when I look at the division, the divisions in the world, you know, problems in marriages, problems in families, problems in churches, problems in neighborhoods, problems in communities, problems uh, in America, problems around the world, in the Middle East, in the Ukraine, when I look at the problems around the world, somehow somebody hasn't gotten this. You know, God has, has actually created us to be one. What does is, what is the Bible say about Adam and Eve, the two, uh, you know, male and female made he them, and then the two became what? One flesh. And there's sort of that intimacy. Uh, we, we, t- we touch on that. We, we taste that when we, when we talk about marriage and two, two people becoming one. Like uh, Craig, Craig and Letha. Did I say, Letha, right? Craig and Letha married for 42 years. They become one flesh. And Paul says in the New Testament, this is a great mystery. How two people, strangers, become one. Of course, they've got to work it out. They've been working it out for 42 years. But, but there's a mystery in that. And th- there's a taste of what God is like and what God really wants to see happen in all of our relationships with each other. It's just profound. It's, it's, tr- it's transcendent. That's a word I've been using lately. It's, tra- it's above and beyond human under- understanding. And, and, and yet it's something that we may not be able to understand and grasp mentally, but it's something we can experience. And we actually become one with others when we serve them. That's what brings us joy. There's, there's a connection. We're building a bridge. We're, we're actually doing what Jesus did. He came out of the Godhead and came into the world to reconcile us to God. So this, this business about our relationships with each other. You know, we're talking about about family, friends, church, and God. This is called one church, okay? Uh, and we use these terms uh, so lightly, and we, we live in a fallen world that so rarely really understands what this means. Brings me to my uh, second point here. God created us in his image to reflect his image to live together in a community of unconditional and uncommon love. And by the way, we're going to see this, that this really is the church. Okay? So God, God created us in his, in his image 
He's created a community of people, many, many differences, in order for us to express this image. I've heard lots of people talk about how, about the image of God is this and the image of God is that, and we're creative and we're moral beings, and you know we can kind of think about past, present, and future, and we have a spiritual capacity, and we're created in the image of God. But the image of God is explained right here in Genesis chapter 1. What is the image of God? Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Let us. This is a strange statement. Let us. The Hebrew word for God in this text is Elohim. Uh, and this is really, this is strange. The only Hebrew word for God is plural. Okay? It, Elohim. And when you put an I am on the end of a word, it turns it into a plural, like the word El, you know, El, El Shaddai, God is the, the mighty one. Uh, the only Hebrew word in the Old Testament is plural, even though the great statement of the, the, sh, uh, the Shema, the great statement of the Jewish faith is, the Lord thy God is one God, right? It's a monotheism. It's the only monotheistic religion in the ancient world, monotheism. In a world of polytheism, where people believed in lots of gods, the only Hebrew word... For God in the Old Testament is Elohim, it's plural. I mean, you know the plural this way. There's a cherub is an angel. A cherubim, you know, cherubim are many angels. Seraph is one angel. Seraphim or seraphim are many angels. So Elohim is plural. So in that great Hebrew statement of faith, the great statement of monotheism, it says, uh, Hear, O Israel, for the Lord, that's Jehovah, Thy God, Elohim, is one Elohim. And of course, from a Christian perspective, we look back and we say, well, there's a, you know, there are signs. There's a sign of the Trinity. And right here in the beginning of Genesis, it says, then God said that's capitalized, you know, it's one God. But in the Hebrew, it's really technically, uh, literally, and the gods said, and what did they say? Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God, uh, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created what? Them. Okay? Male and female he created them. He started with two human beings that have irreconcilable differences. <laughs> and then he says the two will become one flesh. See, there, God has deliberately created us to have irreconcilable differences. There are people who well, I'm getting a divorce. We have irreconcilable differences. Hello? Every marriage has irreconcilable differences so that we can learn about the love of God in, in a life of difference. So that we can accept people, not when they're like what we want them to be, but when they are the way they are. And it is what it is. Okay? So, God created us, plural, in his image. He created them, male and female. So what is the image of God? It's not, it's not um, the fact that we're moral beings, or that we're creative beings, 
or that we you know, can think about the past, the present, the future, and eternity, and all those God-like things. It's very simply stated right here. The image of God, in the image of God, created he them male and female. Male and female, community in diversity is the image of God. So every time there's division or a fight or a divorce or a scandal or a war, the image of God is being perverted. There's no theology of division anywhere in the Bible. Because division, every little bit of division, every bit of human pain is a reflection on God. It breaks God's heart. He's made us to be one. And Jesus is praying for us to be so one with each other that it's like the oneness inside the triune God. It gives me chills just to think about this. Well, the work of Christ, number three, the work of Christ restores God's image in us through the church. So we're one church, one community church, one. What does that mean? It means that we are an expression, we're a new creation. Not just me, but all of us together are a new creation. God is trying to bring us back to where he created us in that pristine, sinless garden of Eden, that sinless sinless world. God's trying to bring us back into those kinds of relationships that he longs for. So the commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and and love your neighbor as yourself. See? So God, in Christ, is trying to bring us all back together. That's what Ephesians is about. The book of Ephesians is about this uh, over, overwhelming message of coming together because of what Jesus does for us. It's about the church. Ephesians is about the church. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, okay, there's division, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not just near to God, but near to one another. For he himself is our peace. You know, our peace. Peace with God, peace with one another. Who has made, he's our peace, who has made the two groups one. Now what are the two groups, Jews and Gentiles? Who would meet with each other, who wouldn't talk to each other. And um, interestingly, the most religious people had the most difficulty with the people who were now religious. It wasn't about the Gentiles having problems with the Jews. It was about the Jews having problems with the Gentiles. Because God's love is not about separating us or isolating us. It's about getting us connected with everybody. It's incredible. All right, so by, and now what does he do? Jesus, he, how has he made the, the two groups one? There's the word one again. Uh, he has, because he has destroyed the barrier. Now what's the barrier? Uh, are there barriers? There's male and female barriers, black and white barriers. There's, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, language barriers. There's, you know, there, there are cultural barriers or economic barriers or ethnic barriers. There are barriers everywhere in our world. There are places of divisions. And, but Jesus has come to destroy the barrier. And what is the barrier? The dividing wall of hostility. Not the dividing wall of difference but the dividing wall of hostility. So God doesn't make, when God makes a husband and wife one, he doesn't make them the same. You know, I've, I've done, I've done, I don't know, several hundred weddings, and 
an amazing thing happens when I do a wedding. After I pronounce them husband and wife, this young man and this young woman, sometimes a little older man, a little older woman, when I pronounce them husband and wife, after the meeting, after the wedding, people come up to me and say, now, you know, they are so one. Could you tell me I'm having a hard time? Which one is the bride? I can't really tell. I can't really tell who the groom is. Okay. I mean, just the way they dress, they're so distinguishable from one another. But then the two become one flesh. So the difference doesn't go away. The, dif- the differences, when you see a couple at a wedding, the differences are enhanced. And this is the way God meant it to be. So he takes all of those differences that we are hostile about, Anytime you're hostile, it's about some difference. It's about someone who did something or didn't do something, you know, and, and your inability in yourself because it's all about you. And it's just how do you deal with all those, those differences? And Jesus has come to destroy the dividing walls of hostility. To me, this is just incredible. It's a message about the cross that has nothing to do with going to heaven or the forgiveness of your sins. The cross is so much bigger than all all those things. That's the starting point for us to become saved and to become born again and to become new creatures. But it's a starting point so that we can embrace everything that the cross represents. Jesus said, if you follow me, take up your cross. And the cross is about dividing all, destroying, destroying all the dividing walls of hostility. Uh, Why? It says, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. In other words, we've got rules, and we we include people and exclude people based on the rules. See? Uh, And it says, his purpose was to create in himself one. Okay? I don't know if Mark ever did a study of the word one in the Bible, but it's pretty phenomenal. One new humanity out of the two thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is the theology of it all. It's incredible. The the Bible isn't just about how to be a good person so that you can go to heaven. It is about the most profound things in the, the most profound things, profound things in the universe. It's cosmic. It's transcendent. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring what? Unity. To what? All things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Organized religion will never be what the church is supposed to be. Organized religion has to do with buildings, organizations, institutions. The church is the people of God in living in a community of com- uncommon love, offering to others the one thing the world is desperately seeking, a community of one of uncommon love. Now, this is the, the practice, okay? This is the practice. Some ridiculously simple advice about relationships and uncommon love from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So Ephesians is about this cosmic, the cosmic view of the church. And Corinthians is about Christians not getting along. There are divisions. 
people are following different leaders. They got issues with this and issues with that. And so now Paul is addressing the local church, and he's trying to help them practically to deal with all of these differences. Okay, so these are ridiculous. This is ridiculously simple advice that will probably make your brain hurt. Number one, the Holy Spirit does not make us the same. He makes us one without taking away a single difference. If you want to discover what this means, get married. Okay? Because until you get married, there's a whole lot of pretending that's going on. And you get married, and then you start saying things like, if I'd have known then what I know now, I would have never gotten into this. Okay? Okay, that person has always been that way. You just didn't know it. Okay? So it, they're no different. They just, you know, we just behave ourselves more until we make the kill. Okay? And once we make the kill, we skin the animal, you know? So, okay, so God doesn't take away any differences. Look at Second First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Just as a body, the one, the one, has what? Many parts. But all its parts form one body. So it is with Christ. We were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Okay, so, you know, God doesn't just turn the body. Your body is not like just a big blob of amoeba, okay? Although if you look at an amoeba under a microscope, there's a lot of stuff interacting in the amoeba, okay? Number, number two, God made us different on purpose, okay? He made us different on purpose. And if you don't understand that, have children, have several children, and they will all be remarkably different, and they won't get along with each other. But this is God's mean plan, okay? So... On purpose. Different isn't wrong. It's just different. My wife has quoted that Bible verse to me a few times. Okay? Different isn't wrong. It's just different. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. God has done this on purpose. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Okay? This is, God's done this on purpose. You just look at your human body. You see how everything works together. It's all interdependent. Okay, so uh, number, uh, number three. You can never say, I don't need that person in my life. Now, I know nobody in this church has ever said that. <laughs> yeah, I was talking about today. Yeah, today. Okay, but before the day is over... That guy in the freeway, you don't need that guy in your life. How many of you, honestly, how many of you have said that at least once? I don't need that person in my life, okay? <laughs> don't look at your spouse as you raise your hand, okay? All right. Uh, I don't need that person in my life. Look at, now look at what it says. What does the Bible say? Let's see what the... Now the foot, if, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand... I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. Next verse. 
And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for, for that reason to stop, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Now, you, you know, you can't, you can't just exclude, oh, I don't really belong here, you know, I'm a no good eyeball, you know, whatever. So, uh, look at the next verse. Next verse. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Next verse. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Now, Paul isn't talking about anatomy. He's talking about people. Because he knows that people say, well, I don't, I don't need that person. In fact, my life would be a lot better if, if that person had never been born. Or had never come into my life. Okay, uh, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, say with me, I don't need you. If you think, you, you know, if, if, the eye, if the eye thinks it doesn't need the hand and the foot, just have a stroke. Okay. So, <clears throat> why is this? Because, because this is the way God has planned the body, which means... Number, number four, no relationship is random. No relationship is random. Nothing in, his life, nothing in life is random unless you are a firm believer in Darwinism. That would be called, that would be called random selection, right? Okay. You know, the, the, the whole idea of, of Darwinism is it really is sort of a, it's, it's, it's sort of an approach, it's a way to understand life Without God, you know, we have to figure this out. How did all this order come together? And it's it's just random selection. But when you when you when you say, "Well, I I don't need that person in my life," what you're really saying is that God didn't really want this to happen either. It, it's it's a rebuke of God because God uses all these different people in your life to get you closer to Him, deeper in your walk, and deeper in your expression of the love of Christ. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I, I just love this verse. <laughs> but in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. In, in uh, the book of Acts, it says that God has, uh, you know, God, God, all the nations of the earth, God has, it, it, it says, God, you are living exactly where God has placed you. So when you have a job or when you move into a neighborhood or you move into an apartment uh, or you, you go camping and there are other camping slots, you know, uh, you know, or you're at the store or you're on the freeway, nothing is random. If it's random, you're really saying there is no God. And Paul is telling, he's talking to Christians who are having relationship problems in, in the church in Corinth He's trying to help them understand the practice of the theology that we're one because God has created us in, in his image. He's trying to help them work through this. And, and this is so, you know, this, this verse will change your perspective about every encounter in every human relationship. Now, it doesn't mean that everything is good. Because your body, you know, it's full of good stuff, but it's also full of bad stuff. I, I, I heard this someplace that you have more microbes in and on your body than you have cells in your body. And all of those nasty microbes are keeping you alive. 
Okay? So, you know, it, it's just this amazing synergy. Uh, in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Number five, I think. Um, well, not, not quite to number five. There are only two kinds of people. People in my family, people not in my family. Okay? And those people fall into two categories. People I like and people I don't like. Okay? <laughs> yeah, well, look, at, look at this next one. Having people in your life that you don't like and or who don't like you is common. A godly Jesus-like response to those people is uncommon. God has placed everybody in your life just the way he wants them to be. And, you know, you, you, have, you have very few choices about relationships. You, you can choose where to go to church. You can choose to quit your job. You can choose to move out of your neighborhood. You can actually try to pray somebody out of your life who is really annoying. But I'm just here to tell you, if you actually succeed in praying somebody out of your life, God has a whole line of people waiting to step into that person's position. Okay, they're, they're standing in line. Just, they're people waiting to make your life difficult, okay? And God has them there for you. Okay, so, uh, you know, when you have children, you, you can choose to get married, but you can't, choose your, you can't choose your spouse's brother, who's a jerk. You can't choose your, brother's, your, your brother-in-law's wife. You can't choose your children. You can choose to have children, but you can't choose to have children the way you want them to be. And they for sure can't choose their parents. They're stuck with you. Just like you're stuck with your mom and dad. Okay, And you have to see God in this. Love is our uncommon ground. Love isn't just some feeling of affection in your heart for someone who is likable. Love is what happens or doesn't happen every day in every relationship. Love is impossible to live out without the empowerment of God in the practice field of the church. And Jesus, who has destroyed the dividing walls of hostility. So, number five, the people we think we need the least, we actually need the most. Just think about your body. Okay? I don't really need my liver. I've never seen it. I've heard they're, they're really kind of nasty looking. My mother used to actually fry liver with onions. <laughs> okay? Okay. Oh, but... The eye cannot say to the head, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Just talk to anybody who has a disabled child. I was on the phone uh, on Friday with a woman who, who is an executive with Johnny and Friends and has developed... A curriculum for Christian colleges. It's one of the most become one of the most popular uh, college curricula, uh, curricula on dealing with disability and suffering in your family. We have a, we have a friend, uh, uh, well Mimi, but uh, her, her daughter uh, Lisette. She and her husband have a severely disabled child. Uh, and what's the child's name? Oh, it'll come to me in a second. But anyway, she wears. Maggie and Maggie wears big red glasses. She still can't talk, right? She's barely, and she's what, maybe six or seven? And uh, red glasses. And, and uh, Lisette 
Lisette has created this whole movement, this red glasses movement. You could probably Google it, red glasses. And it's, you know, and, and it's, you know, clothing and books. It's just incredible what Maggie's life has done for others. And, you know, Kurt Warner, not, I'm not so different after all. That's the name of the book. I'm not so different after all. Kurt Warner, you know, he has devoted his life uh, to children with, with special needs. And because he has a child with special needs. They have seven children, and they have one child with special needs. And it's his wife's child from her first relationship. Um, I was just talking with a pastor on the west side, West Walt Callistead. He's got a huge church over there, Church of Joy. And he's working closely with Kurt. And on their campus, they're building, uh, they're building a, a dream center for families with children who are severely disabled. And so, you know, it's this is what Paul is talking about here. Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Do you know why? Because, because they do something for us. The, the good life doesn't do. So, difficult relationships force me to examine myself. Blaming others keeps me in hiding. Blaming others keeps me from hearing God. Difficult relationships turn me toward God. Difficult relationships develop my character by allowing me to come, be more, become more like Jesus. I don't need Jesus for all the things in my life that are going well. And finally, number six, uh, actually six and seven, different people have to be treated different ways, which puts the pressure on me to want to understand you more than I need you to understand me. Okay. Second, first Corinthians, uh, the parts that we think are the less honorable we treat with special honor. Okay. And the parts that are unpresentable, without me going in, without me dropping my, my grid, my scre- screen, okay, just think about your body, and there's certain parts of your body that you treat with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. And so what Paul is really saying here is, you know how to treat different parts of your body, okay? If, if you slam a cabinet door, you don't do it with the back of your hand. You do it with the palm of your hand. <laughs> because you don't treat the back of your hand the way you treat the palm of your hand. See? And we do some of these things unconsciously, but we, you know, we do other things. You know, our, that we have special parts that need special treatment. Your eyes. You know, you don't squirt... You know, if you got something making your eye itch or something, you don't squirt uh, you don't squirt dish detergent in there to get that sucker cleaned out. You know, you treat it differently. You have to understand how different people actually need to be treated differently. You know, some of you have said to your children, or when you were a kid, your parents said, "You know, you should. I wish you were more like your brother." No, no. Or I wish you were more like your sister. You don't do that because God's made those people that way. And people need to be treated differently. You can't just treat everybody the same. And so it's not about you. It's about that other person and you learning about what they're like. Uh, so Paul says, the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Number seven, the Holy Spirit will empower you to live, yes, to value and welcome different kinds of people into your life. Because you know that only in all that diversity is the image of God in community fully revealed. And look at 1 Corinthians 12. There should be no division in the body, but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, 
every part rejoices with it. The Holy Spirit has to help us with that. And, you know, we could do a whole lesson right here now on, on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter, 20, chapter 5, verse 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, meekness, temperance, self-control. All of those things that actually make everybody else's life better and in turn make our lives better. Love, say with me, love is our uncommon ground. Would you please stand? You know, I haven't really done this since I've been here, but, you know, we're a small community at my, my church. I, I did this every week because we had, we had as many as 50 to 100 guests the first time every weekend. It was crazy for a while there. And, and I don't know, I, I don't recognize everyone here today. I don't know if we've got some guests with us. If, but I just, I just want to say thank you for coming. And it's no accident that you're here. Every single one of you is here today because life is not random and maybe you're visiting us the first time maybe you haven't been in church for a while i don't know but it's no accident that you're here that's one of my favorite life statements it's no accident that you're here um and maybe maybe some of you maybe one maybe maybe a half a dozen i don't know you just you're here because you want to be here and you just know probably you need more of god in your life Maybe you've never asked Jesus to come into your life. Or maybe you asked Jesus to come into your life a long time ago and you need to say yes to Jesus again today. You need to recommit your life to him. And um, so this this isn't for everybody. It's for people who may be visiting or maybe you've been here a couple times or maybe you come here regularly and God has spoken to you. Maybe he hasn't spoken to you until this moment. But if you know that God is present here, and your life needs to go in a different direction, would you all bow your heads? I'd like you to just say this prayer after me. Uh, Just say it to yourself. Say it quietly. But if you know you need to make a decision today to say yes to Jesus, just pray this prayer quietly to yourself. Heavenly Father, it's no accident that I'm here. This is right where I need to be today to hear your word. And God, I need you to work in my life. Jesus, Son of God, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Forgive me for my sins. Jesus, I invite you to come into my life today to be my Savior and my Lord. Change me today and forever and ever. Amen.